0: What is going on? My name is Taylor, and this podcast is called Who Knows, a podcast that works to answer the simply complicated questions of life and promote a life of self-love, mental health, and creating your own normal. Don't worry. We're just as lost as you are. Wow, wow, wow. Wow. This is it, y'all. This is our last interview for season four. Oh my gosh, I cannot believe it. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we still have one more episode to come, the finale. Love the finale episode. So this is not the last episode, but this is the last interview episode of the season. So we don't have to say goodbye just yet. Thank goodness, but it is getting close and it's crazy. It is wild times. And if you know anything about me at all, you know that I will probably be pouring all of my feelings and saying all the things and doing what I do and giving a very special send off to this season of who knows. Uh, so I thought that we could just get right into it and save the monologuing for the finale because this final interview is is a great one. So great that I am giving you an extended cut. A mega-sode is what I'm going to call it because our guest has given us such good stuff and I don't want you to miss a minute of it. But of course, before we get into that, it is time to say a final thank you to the last of our amazing, wonderful, spectacular Indiegogo contributors. And honestly, those words that I just gave, no word is really good enough to describe how great they are. They are literally the best. And they're also going to get a proper big giant thank you in the finale. But I got a couple people left on my list that I want to give a massive thank you to. So thank you to Anna and Artur, Marissa B and Stephen C. You are all so fantastic and amazing. And I cannot thank you enough for all that you have done you made this season happen. We are here because of you. And I am so, so, so grateful for it. Thank you so much. And prepare for me to cry in the finale because I just love everyone that contributed to the Indiegogo because they're the best. I also want to give a shout out to another review that came in. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm so happy that we're seeing reviews coming in again. Y'all, go give a review do it right now. It really, really helps people find the show. And thank you to Heather Galvez for your amazing review. You really did the thing. Everybody else, go do the thing so we can keep doing the thing. The thing. All right. It is the final topic breakdown. Oh my gosh, all these finals. It's making me feel all the feelings. Um I could go on for hours right now in this very moment about how much these have meant to me and how much Jessica means to me, but for this last one, we're just going to let Jessica do her thing, work her magic on this amazing topic. And the topic for this episode, for this final interview episode of season 4, is health and wellness. And as a person working to recover from disordered eating, obsessive exercising and spending most of my life surrounded by people who are fat phobic or deep inside of diet culture, this is a huge topic for me and I know it's a huge topic for a lot of people. There is so much to be said about how all of the toxic ways that health and wellness is portrayed can affect a person's mental health. This conversation needs to be had more often in a way that is regarding how so many people have been led to believe that food is bad. Thin is the only acceptable body type and that wellness only looks and acts one way, not to mention its relation to accessibility, racism, and so many other often forgotten important pieces of this conversation. Um, We talk a lot about yoga today. I love yoga. I love a lot of forms of movement, but I cannot even begin to tell you how often a simple moment of trying to take care of my body Becomes flooded with so many horrible thoughts from past comments and experiences that surround the way I look or the way health is supposed to look. It's very frustrating and heartbreaking that the world has become entrenched in bodies being so much more important than mind or anything else. And I want to keep having these conversations because I know there are so many suffering from a struggle with finding health in a way that makes sense to them, which is the way that you should be finding it. And Not in a way that is based on what others think you should be doing. So I'd like to hand the mic over to Jessica Sheriff, our resident mental health consultant and an amazing therapist. Oh my gosh, I'm already getting choked up. Ah, To help us break down the topic of health and wellness.
1: Health and wellness. Where do I even begin? As a registered psychotherapist, supervisee, and wellness designer, this is absolutely my cup of tea. My work is dedicated to empowering others to reclaim their wellness from the media and wellness industry, from their childhood and generational trauma, and for those with marginalized identities from society at large. More often than not, the wellness industry markets their latest trends to a very specific demographic, someone who is white, cisgendered, able-bodied, with a thin body type, and who is upper middle class. For the many others who do not fall into these demographics, it is up to us to discover our own resources for individual and community health and well-being. So once again, health and wellness becomes a matter of accessibility and inclusivity. We live in a society where if you don't fit that mold, your health and wellness are just not considered as important, thus the resources you may need are not as available. So what does it mean to be well? let's go back to the basics. Some definitions of well include a source from which something may be drawn as needed, to rise to the surface and usually flow forth, or being in satisfactory condition or circumstances. I encourage you to reflect on these definitions or define well for yourself and explore how those definitions manifest in your individual life. What sources do you draw from in times of distress or any personally challenging emotion? And at the end of a good day, what sorts of interactions did you have and how did you spend your time? These are a couple of questions you can use to reflect on how you either consciously or subconsciously take care of your health and wellness on a regular basis. I think the point is that a lot of health and wellness trends do have undeniable benefits such as yoga, meditation, eating healthy, mindfulness, just to name some of the big players in the industry. But these practices don't just look one way and someone can still be well without practicing any of them. For example, if you like yoga, try to seek out diverse and inclusive yoga teachers so that your identities can also be represented in the practice. Or try to focus on listening to your body and understanding what it wants rather than eating healthy. And if adapting some of these trends to fit into your own life still feels inaccessible, cherish the smaller, more easily accessible, perhaps less recognizable wellness practices you do have. For example, some days being well for me is simply a matter of being supportive to a friend or family member in need, or phoning a friend just for a chat or going for a bike ride around my neighborhood after a long day. Remember that regardless of what the industry might tell you is healthy and well, and regardless of the stories some of your past traumas have told you about yourself, you deserve to feel healthy and well in your body, your mind, and your life.
0: I, um, do I even need to explain
1: at this point how amazing that was? Do I even
0: have the words to describe What a treasure we have had this season with Jessica here for every topic breakdown. I don't think I do. Maybe I will in the last episode, but I've loved every single one of these topic breakdowns so much. This one is just such a perfect way to close out this segment for this season. So many helpful and powerful pieces of information in all of them, and especially this one. As always, Jessica, you are amazing. We will get to hear from Jessica one last time in the finale. She's going to be a part of the finale. I'm really excited that she wants to be part of it. Uh, But this is her last topic breakdown. And I just want to give a huge thank you, as always, to Jessica for breaking it down for us all season long. I am so excited and grateful to have had you here. And I'm hoping you'll be here next season and maybe forever. Everybody tell her that we love her so she'll stay. (laughs) Uh, We'll see. But to ensure that you have Jessica in your life forever, make sure you follow her on Instagram at Jessica Sheriff. She's linked in the show notes all season long. Any episode, it'll be there. Her stuff is there along with some great resources for places you might find your own therapist. Because as we know... This is just a small example of what an opportunity to speak with a therapist might be like. And if you feel like you might benefit from talking to a mental health professional, don't be afraid to seek one out. They have dedicated their lives to helping you live yours in the best way. And there is a therapist out there for you right now. So for this amazing Megasode, we are with M. Camellia. I discovered M's work through my discovery of the Trans Yoga Project, which is a collaborative that works to support the presence of positive and spiritual wellness in the lives of trans individuals in many forms, including the practice of yoga. I was immediately drawn to M's deep roots in body positivity, advocacy for marginalized bodies, and their acts of driving home the importance of wellness being more than just your physical appearance and output. You can really feel the strength and kindness that Em is putting into the world. The space that they are making is so needed, and they are getting out there and having some of the toughest conversations imaginable. Em is currently located in D.C., and their work is primarily done through Found Space Yoga, which Em is the head of. They teach yoga classes that are accessible and have a focus on mental health and social justice in addition to the richness of movement. They are also providing workshops that help start conversations surrounding queer identity, body image, and pleasure. They are working in every way possible to make health and wellness a space that includes equity, diversity, and accessibility. Today, M shares the journey that has brought them to doing this work, what this work means for them, and the importance of prioritizing health and wellness in all aspects and senses of the concept. M proves that a healthy mind and validation of experiences and emotions is just as, if not more, important than moving your body. They drive home that health is for everyone and that people from every walk of life and in every body deserve wellness in a way that makes the most sense for their individual experience. With all that surrounds the ideas of what health and wellness is, M is making sure that fat, queer, LGBTQIA+, and BIPOC individuals are part of that conversation in the way that they deserve to be. They're really helping to challenge the toxic narrative that currently exists in the health and wellness space, and I am so grateful for it. So here is M and I talking about health and wellness. Mm-hmm. Em, it is so great to virtually meet you. Also, I love that your cat is here. That makes me very happy. Oh yeah, <laughs> that
2: is Chai. I have another one named Matcha. He's on the couch in front of me.
0: Oh my gosh, these tea cat names. It's so cute. I love that. I'm so grateful to be able to chat with you today because I wanted to have this conversation with you about health and wellness because it needs to be talked about and it needs to be talked about in a way that actually includes everyone and isn't just for you know, one kind of person. I also personally love that your one of your connections with health and wellness is through the yoga practice, because I've been doing yoga, oh, man, I think for about two years now, just kind of on my own. Um, and I really love it. And I really think that even though yoga is rooted in you know, sort of a spiritual wellness and a connection with your mind, it can also become a victim of the toxic ways in which we all look at health and wellness. Um, And so I'm so grateful to get to hear some of your story today and to share your insight with everyone else about this topic. Um, And to get us started, I'd love to hear about where your story begins with yoga and health and wellness in general and sort of how you, you know, got to where you are at today.
2: I don't think it's um, a secret. I think it's a pretty common experience that a lot of our ideas about our body get passed down from our parents. Um. And I was assigned female at birth. A lot of that you know comes from my mom, right um, my first experience with yoga was with my mom um, and it was very much the kind of uh, whitewashed version of athletic yoga in a gym um, and I hated it. <laughs> I was really not into physical activity. I was like uh you know maybe a tween. Uh, or early teenager, um, and I was like, I just want to read and be in musicals, <laughs> and uh, I definitely don't want to do any kind of physical exercise whatsoever, um, but I gave it a try, and it it was not my favorite experience, um, and I didn't go back to a gym yoga class or any yoga class for many, many years. Um, later on as a teenager, um, some of my body image and disordered eating stuff started to get pretty bad. Um, and so my next encounter with yoga was a yoga for fat loss DVD, super problematic. Um, obviously at the time I was just very unaware of what yoga even was, um, let alone how problematic the diet and weight loss industrial complex is in and of itself. Um, and so I would, do that a few times a week as part of my routine at the time. Um, then I went off to college, didn't really engage with yoga at all during college, um, continued to have some body stuff ongoing as it as it happens. Um, and post-college, moved around a little bit. I ended up in San Francisco um, working for Um, a health science university, I was, you know, engaged with this idea of health and this very medicalized version of health, Um, you know, very myopically Western science oriented Um, and also really struggling um, in a pretty toxic relationship, feeling like that lack of control. So things got pretty bad and I was just doing a lot of over-exercising, which included a lot of running and Somebody was like, you know, what you should do as a compliment to that, go to yoga, get stretched out. So still this, like, physical focus, um, but, you know, suggested as this compliment to a lot of other exercise. Um, and I actually feel like I got really lucky, because um, I had no idea what I was looking for, <laughs> for a teacher or a studio. Um, I guess I had this misunderstanding that all yoga was the same, so it didn't really matter. Um And I just Googled whatever was closest to my apartment, and uh, it ended up being a few blocks away, um, and I started taking classes. And the first class that I took um, was with a teacher who um, really was totally present in the space, which I don't know that that's always people's experience. Um, And when I say present in the space, I mean uh, really paying attention to the individuals in the room and not just... um, Kind of standing at the front, performing a sequence, or um, you know, not interacting with the students or uh, helping students adapt their practice uh, to their body. She was really present and walking around and asking questions and engaging with us, um, and was totally willing to work with my body as it was. Um, I've always been larger, even during my you know, most heightened, disordered eating and exercise days, and so, um, I kind of assumed that that's what the yoga experience would be like. Um, I ended up moving to Washington, D.C. not too long after that. Um, kind of did the same thing, found the closest yoga studio to my house, um, on Capitol Hill, um, and I didn't have a bad experience per se, but I did have a totally different experience. Um, The studio that I found was, like, a much more uh, exercise-focused space than the first studio I had found, and um, was doing some, like, not hot yoga per se, but, like, heat everything to 80 degrees, go at a very fast pace, um, very, like, strength and exercise-intensive kind of practice, uh, very physically focused with, like, a, a command cueing structure, so, like, telling you what to do, not really engaging with you about other options. Um, And so, you know, I still didn't have a real reason to question that. I was still relatively new to a regular practice, Um, and I ended up practicing there for a long time. I did my first teacher training there um, because I was working for the studio at that point um, as a studio manager. Uh, They gave me a discount because, you know, those trainings are not always financially accessible, so when I started teaching yoga, um, I was still actually in the midst of that training um, and really learning how to teach this very rigorous exercise-focused style of yoga. We were definitely introduced to the like philosophical and spiritual aspects, but in a pretty cursory way and mostly focused on physical practice. Um, and so I would say for the first couple years that I was teaching, that was still my personal practice focus and my teaching focus, Um, but I have always been really interested in the idea of the truth (laughs) and finding the truth. Like, when I went to to college, it was for journalism because I thought journalists were like the pinnacle of figuring out fact. (laughs) Um, I have a different opinion now, not hating on journalists. I I think they do a very noble profession and, (laughs) um, you know, because of our culture we're not necessarily always uh, presented with the truth in front of us but um, it the the texts that i was learning about the philosophy i was learning about talked a lot about truth um, as both a a value and a practice like a a practice of telling the truth of honesty um, and integrity Um, and then also as like part of the aim of the spiritual practice itself right recognizing Um, our true nature, (laughs) you know, Uh, that really drew me in, Um, and so I started um, studying a lot more of that spirituality, taking some diverse uh, continuing education, just something yoga teachers have to do to maintain registration with the Yoga Alliance, which is not a governing body per se, but has been the industry standard for a long time in terms of credentialing, Plenty to say about that too <laughs> but yeah so I I started digging into the philosophy I felt like the philosophy was really resonant um, you know there's a few times in life maybe this is a universal experience maybe it's just me where you encounter something new and it just jives so perfectly with your worldview that there's almost this kind of deja vu sensation or like I've thought this before or it's like I wrote this in a past lifetime, and it's all just flooding back to me now. (laughs) Um, I had that sort of sensation, um, which I want to clarify is not me actually taking any kind of credit for yoga, credit where it's due. Yoga is a a South Asian practice, and we need to honor its roots. But, um, you know, at the time, it was just so very resonant with where my mind was at. And then there was a bunch of information that I hadn't encountered and a bunch of practices that I'd never been taught and I recognized that I was teaching this thing I just honestly knew very little about. I knew a lot about bodies, um, movement. Um, I knew some, you know, posture names <laughs> and ways that we were practicing this physical-oriented asana is what we call the physical aspect. Um, asana-oriented yoga. But, um, you know, I started to realize that that was pretty... It's a significant piece, but it's um, it's not nearly as big a piece of this practice as as folks would think. Um, and really, exploring the phil- philosophical grounding and starting a meditative and con- contemplative practice has um, been the biggest boost to my mental health um, over time. Um, practicing discernment, um, and I also started to get clued in to how connected the philosophy of yoga and the philosophy of social justice is. Um, I really, you know, I feel like they come, these two <laughs> paths, these two journeys, they're um, united in purpose and values, like both are aimed at liberation of some kind. On one hand, maybe we're talking about spiritual liberation, a uh, a freeing of the mind, um, or a freeing of the individual, the true self, from the bonds of karma through a spiritual practice. And the other is, you know, worldly liberation um, for ourselves, for the people around us, for our communities. I think in both cases, there is an ethos of interconnectedness, this emphasis that we can't be spiritually liberated without one another, and we can't achieve our own liberation in the the worldly plane <laughs> without one another either. That, that liberation is always bound. There's this yoking of each of us to one another, this oneness, um, which is not to say at all <laughs> that we don't also see difference. That's just as important in terms of figuring out who we are as as seeing our sameness. I, over time, moved from a physically oriented practice to a not very physically oriented practice at all. I still teach some asana, but most of what I do now is um, teach philosophy and some of the subtler practices um, and engage in advocacy within the yoga community, primarily um, around equity, around accessibility, around Mm -hmm. consent. Yeah, all of these other sort of social justice aspects that I think are baked in are inherent in the holistic practice of yoga.
0: That's a fantastic journey. And I do really love that you acknowledge to love them, hate them, but our parents really do inform some of those can can potentially inform some of those toxic behaviors. I, myself included, was surrounded from a young age by people doing... I mean, I knew what Weight Watchers was probably before I knew what a lot of other things were. It's the construct. It's what we're all fed about what we're supposed to look like and what is acceptable. And it's so unfortunate that something so, you know, wonderful and healing and peaceful as yoga can become something that feeds into that toxic mindset. And one of the other things that I really loved that you said was that first studio that you went to where the teacher was very present in the room and really giving their attention to the individual. And it's so interesting how much of a difference it can make when we This sounds so basic and, like, I can't even believe I'm saying this, but, like, it's so great to see what can happen when we treat each other like human beings and not, like, you know, something that's giving us money or, you know we're all like this for some reason when I think about this this may only resonate with a few people um there's this episode of the fairly odd parents where everybody is like a gray person and they're like all the same person and like that is what it's feeling like life is becoming especially when it comes to size and health and wellness we all need to be this size we all need to be smaller and I think that it's fantastic that you know not only are you out there making sure that we're going beyond that toxic sludge of an idea, but that something that still, you know, informs what you're doing to this day was a moment when somebody was like, hey, let's look at this differently. Let's look at this from a perspective of not only This can go beyond the physical movement that we're doing, but that this is for everyone. It's just always so focused on how can I become what I feel as though I need to be because that's what I've been told. And even you said that your yoga training began in that mindset of like, this is what I know. I know the asana. I know the scientific based. Even though you, you know, were sort of, you sort of came up in that training, you were able to find that moment where you're like, this is not what I want to be doing. And like when you've been doing something for a while, you're doing something for a while and you find that break where you're like, Oh, this is not what I should be doing. It feels terrifying to make that change because you're like, but the, all that stuff I just did, like, it, do I have to admit that I was wrong? Do I have to admit that I failed? Like, where do I go from here? What do I do? I'm so curious to hear just when you are creating the classes that you're creating that are based in nurturing the soul and who the person is more than you know their physical body and when you're creating the conversations that you're having in the workshops that you're doing what what are you where are you drawing from emotionally what is it for you that you love the most and is most important to you when you're creating the spaces that you're creating for the people that you're creating them for
2: Um, Well, the first thing that really stood out to me about what you were saying was that, like, resonance of that idea of a breaking point, that, like, there's that moment when it dawns on you (laughs) and things start to shift. Um, For me, with yoga, that was a period of disillusionment that really started when I started to um, go into, you know, some form of recovery, whatever that means, from my disordered eating and exercise habits, and started to gain some weight. Um, and suddenly I could no longer like keep, keep up with, I know people can't see me, but (laughs) you can see me right now. And I'm doing the little scare quotes with my hands, you know, I couldn't keep up with, um, the practices that I used to. Um, and there was no one coming to me and saying like, you know, here's another option. (laughs) And, you know, I started to realize that, um, you know, it just isn't common, it, it, it isn't part of our initial training as a whole in the United States or in the West to learn about adaptation. Um, and so I got pretty disillusioned, I was like, so if I don't have this particular body, particular ability level, I'm no longer able to benefit from this practice, I just have to sit in this room with all of these, like, thinner than me, more able-bodied than me people, and watch them do the practice while I sit here until there's something I can do again, um, was really disempowering, um, and that was the stark opposite to the experience I had previously had with yoga, um, and I had you know, taken for granted that part of the reason I was able to feel empowered in my you know, earlier experiences as an adult with yoga was that I was closer to the very normative body that we are all taught to teach in our initial trainings. As I got further away from that, I realized that like studio classes, as they were, weren't working for me for a variety of reasons. Um, I also started to recognize that I was feeling uh, more and more disempowered by that command structure, that command language. As I was trying to take studio classes, um, I remember in my first teacher training when we were taught to, um, to specifically give commands that like it wasn't okay to uh, be wishy-washy, as they <laughs> as they said, and you know present things as optional. That everything was required because you were liable for keeping people safe, and the only way to do that uh, was to teach by command and not leave things open to interpretation, which I have come to understand is actually basically the complete opposite of what actually keeps people safe during a physical yoga practice, because we do not have the same bodies, um, you know, beyond just size, um, in terms of, like, biomechanical movement and anatomy, like, people's bodies are arranged differently on the inside. People have differently shaped bones. Some people have more bones than other people. Like, there's a lot of difference there. Like, you know, your inability to square your hips in a Warrior One. Like, most of us actually can't get our hips totally squared. And in terms of the biomechanics of that shape, which is kind of a lunge with one foot stepped back and, and one foot forward with a knee bend, that is not necessarily a pose where we're even supposed, supposed to I hate that phrase but I don't have a better one right now like be able to square our hips for any sort of functional purpose so like even if we just want to talk about the physicality a it's not accessible to most people to have totally squared hips in that pose Um, and even for the folks where it is like that's fine and if that feels good and and feels empowering I you know I don't have a problem with people doing that and the way that we teach by command and with this very supremacizing of, of certain types of bodies or flexibilities or sizes, like the way that we orient around that, um, it it makes it seem like that is the right way to do an asana. And part of the journey from when I faced that disillusionment for myself has really been like, what... like why Why should there be a template? Like, now that I have a different understanding of what the purpose of physical practice even is, of, of why asana is part of the yoga practice at all, um, it just, it's stopped making sense to me why we would be going for the aesthetics of a pose versus whatever is going to give the individual the benefit that they're seeking or help them connect internally. Um, I think that, Ultimately, yoga is an embodiment practice, um, and particularly asana is an embodiment practice, a somatic practice that we are um, moving and experiencing that physical movement and learning how to tap into our, our sensation, like literally our <laughs> sensation, in a way that um, a lot of the structures of our world are intentionally trying to disconnect us from. All of those systems of oppression, like... All of the traumatic experiences that we continue to perpetuate as a society, as a culture, are intended to disembody us, right? And a lot of folks who have experienced trauma of any kind, um, like one of the things that trauma scientists will always tell you is that there is um, this sort of fragmenting, disconnecting from the body, that on its extreme end is dissociation, right, where you like actually feel like you're outside of your body, but even if you are not on that extreme end of dissociation, that mechanism of trauma in your body is still to um, make you feel less as a protective measure, and so I'm not trying to pathologize that or say that that's bad because it's it's a survival mechanism and it's important, but it's also not really how we are meant to to live our lives. Um, it's not great for our bodies or our continued um, ability to have agency in the world. Like if you can't feel what feels good, <laughs> how are you supposed to engage with pleasure? Uh, so in terms of physical practice, you know, one of those benefits can be to practice interoception, which is that ability to feel your own sensations within your body. Um, And we can then use that sort of awareness within the body to make more agentful choices about what we do with the body. (laughs) And I think when we go into classes, and it is oriented with a teacher at the front of the room, and students, you know, arrayed on mats, the first thing that um, I, I... Think about when I just think about that setup in general is the fact that we're already coming in with an established power dynamic. That most of us, you know, if we went through traditional education per se, we went to public or private school where there was a teacher and a group of students, um, we were taught that the teacher has the power, right? Because we were kids um, and our understanding was that adults had authority. That's generally adults' understandings as well. Uh, And that was reinforced for us in that dynamic of, like, the teacher makes the rules and enforces the rules and is the one telling us what we need to do, um, you know, in grading our performance. Uh, So that is a huge power dynamic. I don't think we just lose that understanding of a teacher-student relationship as adults unless we intentionally unlearn it. So I think when we set up this dynamic of teacher and student in a yoga class, people come in, participants come in, and teachers come in with that ingrained sense of this is what the dynamic is. And we behave differently when we're within established power structures. If you believe somebody has power over you, um, you are more likely to listen to that authority. So we are already setting up our classes to be based in this hierarchical model of power over between teacher and student. And that means that if we as teachers come in and we only give one option, and we um, put a single expression of a posture or a practice on a pedestal, that is exactly what our students are going to take away. And instead of being empowering, instead of being like, oh, now I have the tools to tap into my body in a new way to make these connections. like that we're just reinforcing these hierarchical models that are at the heart of all of the institutional oppressive power dynamics that like, we're also maybe working to dismantle, right? Like, white supremacy is fundamentally a hierarchy based on race, right? Like, homophobia is essentially a hierarchy based on orientation. Like, misogyny, um, patriarchy, All of the isms that we could talk about are these hierarchical structures. We mirror that in our business structures. We mirror that in our schools. It's reinforced over and over and then we wonder why we have a a culture where consent isn't practiced. I think it's because we are just creating these hierarchies and this culture, this dominant culture, that is based in supremacy and domination if we think about yoga as an embodiment practice where we are supposed to be empowered where we're supposed to be tapping into the tools and the wisdom of the body and the energy body and everything else that that lies within that then we can't use those same power over dynamics right we need to share power um we need to Work, yeah, work within new confines that make agency part of the practice. Because if this is a liberatory practice, then we have to be free. And we have to model freedom and we have to practice freedom. It's not an easy thing to accomplish and it's not an easy thing to maintain without practice. So the way that I approach teaching now is very much like my only job as a teacher is to clear the barriers that exist that have been set up and constructed for you to accessing the wisdom that you already have within your body. You have everything you need and that's what the, the yoga philosophy, the scripture would tell us too, that like everything you need, all of the truth of the universe, is contained within each of us, is contained within everything. The body is just one of those tools and when we talk about the breath of yoga practice, the breath is one of those tools, right? The um, the practice of concentration is a tool. Meditation is a tool. Um, these are also very sacred spiritual practices, trying to honor, you know, the life that we have. Um, I don't want tool using the word tool to imply that it's like, I don't know, something really basic. <laughs> it's a, you know, sacred tool um, for experiencing, for using the senses to have new experiences. That we can then interpret using our miraculous minds um, to learn more about who we are as a species, um, as individuals, as communities, um, and to learn about our interconnectedness. And so, when I said earlier that I don't think you can like extricate social justice from yoga, and talked about that interdependence, like that is what I mean. We're not just there in the room to connect, you know, one mind to one body within the individual. We're there to realize that we are already connected to one another. And I think we're there to explore relationship within our bodies, um, but also like to take that wisdom from within us and take it outside of ourselves, off of mats, out of studios. And so when I, when we do that, and when we put that into practice in the world, I think that looks a lot like the work of social justice and activism. And wow, if those two things are not just the most powerful pair that I have ever found because they do share all of those values. And when we have the means, the tools, and the space to practice agency, to practice liberation in an embodied and somatic way, that is so much more powerful than just like being lectured at about Um, you know, what these dynamics are and how we practice social justice. I started out saying, you know, my work has moved in this trajectory of moving kind of beyond asana. I wouldn't say that it precludes it. Um, I would say that a lot of what I do now, instead of directly teaching asana practice to students, is to train teachers in everything I just said to you in a little more depth, you know, over some time, Um, and I, I hope that that has a larger impact than I could make just teaching yoga classes in studios, right? That's my intention with with education is that instead of just me trying to teach this philosophy and this embodiment practice and provide opportunities to practice choice-making and interoception, that I can train other teachers who are going to engage, you know, uh, ever-expanding, exponential numbers of students with some of these ideas and really, um, offer a practice that can empower them to become not only, um, you know, self-realized individuals and spiritually liberated individuals. If that is the, if that is their goal eventually or, or initially, um, but also to contribute to those larger scale changes.
0: <sighs> There's just so many things that like, not only are feeding into what I've been thinking a lot about with health and wellness, but are sort of ideas that like, I, you know, have maybe like, felt in passing or like new already, but I'm seeing it in a new way. And one of those is the idea that like, we really, I almost want to say that we are not taught to think for ourselves in a way that makes sense for us. And I also feel as though we are taught That we, that things should be painful for them to be worth it. One of the things that I feel as though sticks in my mind when I am struggling with my body image or with my eating disorder is that part of the reason why I feel that I need to be the way that I need to be, I'm also using the quotes now, (laughs) is that. Somebody told me that and I am, you know, when you're being taught something, you're, you're taught to mirror in yoga practice, even in school, in like the traditional way of like, you know, a teacher standing up at the board and you learning to do whatever it is that you're learning to do. You're learning by example. You're learning by what that person is telling you. I, like so many of us, have learned that like, this is the body type that I'm supposed to be. This is how exercise is supposed to make me feel. And it's all rooted in, you're not good enough, you're bad, do better, be better, be this way. And this is why this idea is why mental health and physical health, they are not separate. You can't just sacrifice your mind to become something that you feel as though you need to be because somebody standing up at the front told you that that's how it should be maybe that works for them but they don't know your life they don't know what you're going through you know in and in terms of the accessibility that you're trying to drive home with yoga that is so important because my OCD is never going to go away I might learn to adapt my life to better suit what I have going on with myself. And that's the same idea with the accessibility in the physical yoga practice. And I also think that there is an accessibility there could, I mean, and and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there's also something to be said about the accessibility for those that have mental health issues with yoga. Because when I'm, I have not been to a lot of public classes um, partially just because I, I can't always afford it. I, you know, there's money, this and this and that, but another part of it is that I have been taught to, you know, I have, it's a, it's a negative thing, but I've been taught to look around and see what others are doing. And because I have OCD, there's a perfectionist and it's, you know, and I, when I talk about this, I feel like people don't fully understand the breadth of what that means when I say that I'm trying to be perfect. Like it's almost like, it almost doesn't make me, I can't function. Like, and so when I'm at home and I'm just doing yoga with a YouTube video, like not only am I able to practice, you know, my down dog, my vinyasa, whatever it is, but I'm also able to, I have to sit there and say, Taylor, who gives a shit like just be here and that's hard work and you know that's uh, that's another part of accessibility and, and with the fact of like maybe somebody's body doesn't work the same way i am lucky enough to not have any physical um, things that impair me from movement but i know that there are a lot of people that do and that's the same thing that like you're if you're in a class with somebody that doesn't that that isn't either does, maybe they don't understand it because they're not experiencing it or even at the same time, they're not even like making it something that they're taking into account when they're instructing like that's going to make somebody not want to do it. Health and wellness is not a safe space as it stands currently for everyone. It's only a safe space for the people that can do everything the same way that everybody can do it, you know? And I don't know, I just, I'm I'm thinking more about the idea that we are being literally instructed from the front of the room of life. This is so, like, I feel like I'm getting so meta, but it's real, like we're being instru- instructed from the front of the room of life to feel bad about ourselves that we're wrong, that we need to do things the exact same way as everybody else. And that is how mental health deteriorates. Like that's where we're teaching it from the front of the room. The only way to move forward to create a better space in the health and wellness space is to begin to acknowledge not only the fact that mental health actually is part of physical health, one cannot be you know, more important than the other, or maybe it could be, I don't know. I'm biased with mental health because it's my, it's my jam, obviously, but like, I don't know. I just, I, I think I'm realizing more and more how much hierarchy is coming into play in everything. And I'm so grateful for you making me realize that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it comes into play in everything. If there wasn't hierarchy, I don't think perfectionism could exist. Because to be perfect, you have to be able to define what perfection is. And that requires you to put particular bodies or identities or skill sets or what have you like at the top of a ladder that is hierarchical and everything you know, on lower rungs than that is imperfect. And then we internalize that, right? And we, we start to think of ourselves and talk to ourselves more negatively part of what yoga has given me, honestly, is that skill of discernment for like what I am feeling, which I I think of now as more of a question than an answer to anything. Um, And then like the rational part of my brain that makes connections, that analyzes the things that I know, um, that can sort of help my feeling body out, if that makes sense. You know, like I definitely share that drive towards perfectionism, but now when I feel that sensation, I have practiced like turning on my rational brain a little bit and being like, "Okay, I'm obviously employing the sense of perfectionism. What is the standard that I'm now holding myself to and where does that come from?" Right? And every single time, every single time that I'm able to try trace that back to its root, it's rooted in a system of oppression. It's rooted in a constructed hierarchy that is not only harming me, but harming everyone. Because these these systems, even if you are someone who exists with more privilege within that structure, um, you're still being harmed. You are still under the control of the system itself, right? You are still listening to that metaphorical teacher at the front of the room, externalizing that authority and using that, like acting from that place, right? that's not a recipe for authenticity and I think figuring out who we are really like who what comes from within us is so important like that is so liberating right and we live in a culture as you said where we are not taught to look inward we're taught to look outward because it upholds these systems of oppression.
0: Yeah, it's that idea that everything is about fall in line, do what everyone else is doing. This whole journey of what you have decided to do with your yoga practice and your health and wellness. I just want to know what your favorite things are about it and how it makes you feel, and like those things that I I just equate it honestly to what gets you out of bed in the morning, and also. Even though, you know, we, we've gotten out of bed in the morning, we did that part, but the challenges are coming and they happen, whether we want them to or not, and the fears. And so what are the things that get you out of bed in the morning in this work that you do? And at the same time, what are, the cha- and what are some of the challenges that you face along the way that you, you know, have to combat as you do that work? Because, again, as much as we love these ideas, we live in a world where they're not really they're not ready for it yet. We know that like it's, it should be happening and we've got our crew around us that knows, but it's like, we just got to break through the wall. But yeah, what gets you out of bed and what keeps you going and what's challenging for you?
2: Well, if I'm honest, what gets me out of bed is coffee. I, I feel like um, just in terms of where my executive function is at and like um, my experience with depression being the sort that like getting out of the bed is a struggle all the time um having cats is a mechanism to get me out of bed because they want to be fed and they are going to be in my face um also coffee because i do like positive reinforcement over negative reinforcement whenever possible and i like to um like part of my practice is orienting towards the pleasure right orienting towards the the opportunities um and then you know being accountable to the responsibility that comes with opportunity but coffee is an opportunity every morning. <laughs> and, like, literally, I'm, I can't understate... I, I'm sorry to go from, like, this deep conversation to just my love of coffee right now, but, like, it is what gets me to go to bed. <laughs> like, I have killer insomnia uh, and a lot of executive dysfunction with both major depressive disorder and um, uh, ADHD. So, I, like, I... I am always want to just like stay up and dive into a wikipedia hole or keep watching tv or i just don't notice the time and when i'm like shit i need to do a podcast interview at 11 a.m i should go to bed um i am like and when you get up there will be coffee like i think we all need that <laughs> I think it's actually profound if i'm if i'm honest about that too like uh, you know i start off kind of joking about coffee but like pleasure is so important and it is you know in terms of how we have studied this and how pleasure versus pain or shame or um you know negative reinforcement versus positive reinforcement like what motivates people it's it's pleasure every time over the other like it's not that those things aren't sometimes somewhat motivating. But like if pleasure is going to be more motivating and also pleasurable, why is it that we don't orient towards it, right? Um and so I, I'm always looking for the things that bring me genuine pleasure that especially the things that don't rely on other people, which is not to say that I don't get a lot of pleasure out of relationship and that that's not something that also gets me up in the morning like Getting to see my collaborators, getting to see my colleagues, getting to see my partners and my friends, like that is a thing that gets me out of bed because I think in relationship, in any relationship, there is a, a self exploratory aspect. Like we are mirrors of one another, and in the ways that we are different, we notice those differences which can teach us about ourselves. And in the ways we're the same, we notice our sameness, and that can teach us about ourselves, right? Um, that is such a pleasurable experience, because I think ultimately, I even if we are not necessarily conscious of it, I think we are all asking, like, who am I? Why am I here? What is the point? (laughs) You know, and um, I'm sure we could come up with a bunch of answers. But I'm just like, I'm not even focused on the answer anymore. I think that's been one of the biggest shifts. And really, like, just to call back to that perfectionism conversation, like I think we we are trained to listen to whoever is imbued with power within our society and to consider them an authority. Um, ultimately, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think you know, like the the core reason is is all of these systems and hierarchies that that want to perpetuate themselves. But like we also want the pleasure of belonging we want the pleasure of affirmation we are social creatures and that um yeah that sense of pride um isn't it's an evolved emotion like they've studied uh, across cultures like anthropologists and social psychologists like it you know to see if this is something that is cultural and taught, or if it's like an innate emotion that we have as humans, and the findings have all said, like, this is something we evolved into because it is also you know important to our survival, because we are social, because we can't always do everything alone, and we can survive longer uh, if we have community around us, and if we work together. Um, and, there is a lot of pleasure in anything that brings us towards life and I talk about this a lot because like literally right like what gives us life sex (laughs) food (laughs) like uh community belonging working together these things like um if if those are not like kind of the the top pleasures that I can name (laughs) like in a kind of general sense then like or at least what we equate with them, like, that that says something to me about the role of pleasure, you know? (laughs) Which is not to say ignore death either, and I am definitely the person who's like, I get out of bed because I know I have a short time on this planet. (laughs) Uh, You know, (laughs) that is my other honest answer. Um, It is not so much fear of death, but it is desire for life. Which, oh my god, if you met me 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, and you were like, I get out of bed, you know, or I, I said I get out of bed because of a desire for life, like, people would have, like, thought I was having a mental health emergency <laughs> for having said that. Like, uh, cause that was not my worldview forever, or something I even felt capable of feeling, and yet... Um, as I get more in touch with what actually drives my, like what motivation that I have, what motivates me, it's coffee, (laughs) you know, it's good food. It like, I'm very food motivated. Um, it is sensual pleasure and I don't just mean sex, but like tactile pleasure, sensuality. And, um, it is getting to be in nature and feel kind of closer to, um, like a sense of belonging to something larger, right? Which can happen in human community, certainly, but I think can also happen when we engage with the natural world. And, like, it's so motivating. It's so motivating. It is what gets me to do the work that I do because I want, I want to be able to feel that pleasure and I understand that because of who I am, because I am queer, and I am trans, and I am fat, and I am neurodivergent, and I am physically disabled, chronically ill, like, I have had the experience my entire life of my pleasure being demoted, demeaned, demonized, right? Fat people are not allowed to enjoy food, (laughs) right? Like, they're also not, you know, typically allowed in terms of the societal lexicon or representations to enjoy sex. Among... Uh, like the disability justice movement. Like, it's this, it's the same sort of thing. Like, we are denied access to spaces of pleasure. There is no representation of uh, folks with disabilities having sex or having positive relationships or engaging in other pleasurable things. Like, there's barely any representation of disability in the media anyway. It is such a problem, and it teaches us through that process of seeing it and internalizing it and, like, without knowing it, building a standard in our mind that says that perfect is white, able-bodied, cis, straight, Christian, wealthy, (laughs) all of those things, um, which is a very, very colonialist, white supremacist idea of perfection. Um, You know, we, we sit and see those things and then we see ourselves be, instead of lifted up in any representation, just, just continually demonized. I think it is our job as folks who experience oppression um, to seek out and engage in pleasure. And in order to do that, we need some sort of mechanism for figuring out what we find pleasurable. And that is something we're often denied. And that is something that, for me, yoga has been able to offer that because I am more capable to, of tapping into my own body, of feeling my own body, of literally feeling my own body, I now can enjoy things in a different way. I get new input from the same experiences. I can interpret that a little bit differently. And I can orient towards that. And I can say, like, oh, when I stretch in this way... feels really great on my spine. Maybe I'm going to do more of that. Maybe I'm going to incorporate more practice, you know, my, my asana practice, like maybe I'm going to incorporate that more. Maybe I'm going to explore what other options there are for providing like a similarly good sensation. I feel like I, uh, I want to make sure that I credit, um, both audrey lord and adrian Murray brown who wrote pleasure activism um which is very based on um, audrey lord's uses of the erotic um an essay um i i feel like i can't keep talking about this without mentioning them because they have been big sources of inspiration and like another a similar one of those moments of like oh this is exactly where my brain is at and now somebody's just like putting it in more elegant language that I can really interpret in a new way and and connect with. But, um, yeah, so those are our recommended reads for sure. Um, but, right, I'm just like, if we're going to create change, if we're going to do what we say we're going to do and dismantle these oppressive systems, which seems to be the tagline of every corporation and person, especially in the United States right now after what we've all collectively been through in the last year and a half like we need to build pleasure into that practice we need the metaphorical coffee that's going to get everybody out of bed to do this work and sustain it and want to keep getting out of bed to do it we can't show up and try to motivate one another through shame for not doing enough like that may be true i don't want to uh, trivialize the like lack of things that folks of privilege, including white folks, you know, myself included, um, have done in terms of racial justice or any of these other equity battles. Like we do need to do more and we are not set up to want to do more. And it is really hard to do things that you don't want to do if it doesn't affect you and you don't have to. And so that's what I'm saying is like, yes, we need to do more, but we need to think about our tactic what's going to get us to actually do more. Is probably not shame. That's what I had to do just in, you know, the microcosm of my personal work with yoga. Like, once I felt so disillusioned, um, as my body was changing and as I was um, just having a completely different experience in those spaces, I was like, do I even want to do this anymore? Right. It took a while for me to reconceptualize things and say... Like, this is not, this experience that I'm having that is so negative and disempowering, this is not what yoga inherently is. And it doesn't have to be taught this way. In fact, teaching it in other ways that focus on the experience of the individual practicing and adapting to that person and making this truly accessible in a more universal way is is more aligned with the roots of this practice and honoring of the spiritual lineage that this comes from than teaching in this westernized, oppressive command structure that we've built.
0: I'm just so grateful for all that you've shared because I feel like it's really a culmination of, you know, what this season is about where passion and feelings are, they drive everything we do. Mental health is part of everything. I really want somebody to try to tell me that it's not because it is. it is. I am really just glad that I took a chance and got the chance to talk to you because you offered so many fantastic pieces of insight on this conversation. And before we sign off, is there anything else that you feel that you wanna share or any pieces of information that you feel could not go unsaid?
2: There is something that you said earlier that I didn't get a chance yet to go back to, but I want to take a moment to do that. And that's to maybe challenge you a little bit on uh, your assertion that you're not mentally whole, (laughs) which is something that I, (laughs) yeah, something that I have sat with a lot, this idea of like wholeness and the idea of healing um, and the baggage that's assigned to those things. Like, um, I think it's part of those systems of domination and supremacy and oppression that tells us that if we are not that perfectionist standard that we're not whole right and like just because something is different does not mean that it's not complete um and uh, like this is something this is at the heart of accessible yoga right like that You know, just because your version of this asana or your expression of this practice or the way that it translates to you and your life isn't the same as the person next to you or the person in the anatomy book or the teacher, it doesn't mean that you are doing anything lesser. You're just doing something different. And if we focus it on that individual experience, which is really like the power of the practice then we can all find a version of the asana or the practice or what have you that's going to work for us individually based on who we are, based on our body, based on our mind, based on our needs in the moment, which are always changing, uh, based on our values, based on how we experience having a body at all, like all of those things, right? If I were to believe that um, depression or ADHD or... My autoimmune condition um, made me less whole because wholeness was some kind of health standard of perfection that I can't ever attain. Um, like, I can't find peace. I can't be liberated. I'm going to spend my whole life trying to achieve something that's not possible. And what what kind of life is that, like, the unattainable goal rather than focus on the journey and the pleasures and making sure that we are all experiencing life to its fullest. I know that sounds hokey, but like, I I think it's a trope for a reason.
0: <laughs> My normal reaction would be to apologize for saying that, but I'm not sorry, because that gave you the opportunity to give that information and remind me in a super kind and real way that I am allowed to shift my thinking. And that's what it's all about. And I am just so grateful. I could say a lot of things because I have all the feelings now because it was just so nice of you to say that because I need to hear that. And I know that there are other people out there that need to hear that too. And that's what I care about most is that, you know, I put myself into these experiences of having these conversations with people so that we can get something like that. That's like, that's why I have those moments. I love those moments when I have these conversations where I'm like, and that's why I do what I do. So thank you so much for being here and for being a part of this and everything that you gave is such a gift. And I really, truly appreciate it so much. Thank
2: you. I really appreciate the opportunity and the the conversation.
0: Thank you all so much for listening. I hope that you got something out of this episode, whether it be a new perspective on health and wellness overall, or maybe an understanding of the importance of including everyone in this conversation and the value in finding health and wellness beyond the constructs of what we've always been told that it looks like and as always we encourage you to have conversations like these with the people in your life the more conversations like these we have the less we feel so alone trying to figure out life and the closer we feel to those that we love this has been my favorite thing to say this whole season and I'm gonna really drive it home don't let Anyone convince you that you shouldn't talk about your feelings? They are valid and they are important, and sharing your feelings might help another person have the courage to share theirs. I cannot thank M enough for all that they shared in this episode. They are such a gift of a human being, they really helped challenge so many knee-jerk thoughts to help turn them into ones where we are seeing ourselves and our lives as something that is worth taking care of being present for and finding ways to make important and valuable changes em thank you so much i don't even think that thank you is enough what you are doing is such a valuable gift and thank you for sharing it with us in this episode this is not the end Well, this is the end of this episode, but the finale is coming soon to a streaming platform near you. Make sure you're subscribed. Wherever you listen to this, are you subscribed? Do it. And while you're waiting, catch up on some old episodes. Leave a review. Go to the Patreon for some more stuff. We will be back again one more time. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I couldn't help it. We'll be back again one more time to wrap up season four with the finale. There will be laughs, cheers, maybe some crying. Be there to find out spoiler alert they'll probably be crying but you should still show up because it's going to be a great finale to a great season but for now on this last interview episode we will say what we always say who knows who's out there but i love you and thanks for listening this episode was hosted and produced by me taylor dankovich our music is written and performed by the isa Kailov project it's not the end of the season stay stay here because stay here you know goddamn